twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Hi, and welcome back to my podcast, Little Sapiens. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident from New York. On today's episode of Lil Sapiens, we're going to be talking about lead poisoning, and we'll be going through a Pediatrics in Review article that was published recently in June of 2021. As a parent, you might recall taking your child to the pediatrician, and as they were getting older, your pediatrician might have asked you a question that seemed a little silly. Where do you live? Do you live in a home or do you live in a building? When was your home or building built? Was it built before 1978? As a pediatrician, you might just be going through the motions of asking these questions, checking that box off the checklist. However, most of the time in the back of your mind, you are actually wondering, is this patient at risk for lead poisoning? And regardless of that answer, you'll be sending off a lead level as a screening tool to make sure that they are safe and not in harm's way. So as a brief introduction to this topic of lead poisoning, before we even uh, go through the motions and really really follow the rubric that was set here in this Peds and Review article, I want to start by saying that the reason why lead poisoning is so important as an introduction is because it has many effects in the body. And, um, you know, throughout training through medical school and then again through residency, a lot of the times when you hear lead poisoning, the first thing that you think of is its effect on the production of red blood cells and its ability to cause a microcytic anemia. And so I want to make this point clear from the outset, and that is that lead poisoning, yes, it does affect the RBC production and will cause a microcytic anemia. However, lead poisoning has many other effects on the body because of its ability to bind to proteins and compete with other chemicals in the body or other uh, electrolytes in the body. And so um, by that process, it's not just affecting RBC production, the production of red blood cells, but also affecting other proteins and other enzymes that are essential to life and homeostasis. Now, the truth is defining lead poisoning is a really difficult Uh, thing to do. And the reason for that is because when we send off a blood lead level as a pediatrician at the one-year-old well visit, we assume that the level that we are getting back is actually reflective of the toxic profile that's within the blood. And what I mean by that is when we get a level back Um, from uh, the blood lead level, uh, what we're actually looking at is the red blood cell lead content. That's what we are assessing, the red blood cell lead content. And that is roughly 98% of what we're actually checking. And so we really don't get a good idea of the plasma lead content, which is what we want to know because the plasma lead content is the actual lead that has the ability to enter tissue and cause toxicity and build up in those tissue. As a quick fun fact, if lead atoms are injected into blood, half of them are gone in approximately three weeks. In contrast to that, lead atoms that reach and enter brain cells remain there for one to two years. And so that's the concept that I want to summarize here. It's the idea that when we check a lead level, we're not getting a true picture of what's actually in the tissue. And so even if that lead level comes back on the lower side, it isn't really giving us a great idea of 
the duration that this patient was exposed to lead or how much necessarily they've actually ingested or how much is stored and building up in the tissue that can cause damage later on in life. So in short, the only thing that a blood lead level can really, really tell us accurately is that there has been a past or current exposure. Now, because we really don't have a better lab test available, um, you know, for the masses, and because blood lead levels in populations have been shown to correlate with better health outcomes because we've been able to at least prevent and educate families about lead poisoning, it still remains, the blood lead level still remains the gold standard for assessing the risk of harm from lead. And so when that blood level comes back, regardless of what the number is, if it's not zero, there is a associated risk of toxicity, especially in susceptible people. And so what I'm trying to get at here is that there is no safe blood lead level that's been determined. Any level greater than zero has that associated risk of toxicity and needs to be considered carefully. So let's talk about lead. Where does it come from? How does it get into the body? And why are we so focused on testing lead levels in children and specifically at a certain age? So lead is an atom that's located on the periodic table and it's a metal. And children ingest this atom, this metal. How do they ingest it? Where do they get it from? Well, it's from paint chips, from old paint that used to contain lead in it that then breaks off the walls into these little paint chips on the floor or dust on the floor that comes from these paint chips that that children then pick up with their hands, put it in their mouths, swallow it, and uh, eventually some of that lead gets absorbed into the blood and then can go to the tissue and cause damage. This sounds scary, and indeed it is, but we're actually very, very, very lucky. And the reason why we're lucky is because when these paint chips are swallowed, only a tiny amount is actually digested sufficiently enough to cause the release of lead ions into a liquid phase. And that means that only a tiny amount is actually absorbed into the bloodstream. This prevents the death that could occur from eating even a single paint chip that came from the 1930s or the 1940s that's the size of a child's thumbnail. That chip could contain 500,000 micrograms of lead. However, only a few micrograms will actually be released and become available for absorption in the body. If you're a science geek like I am, you might be asking yourself, I don't understand how lead atoms can actually fit into cells. And the reason why people might ask that question is because lead atoms specifically have an atomic weight of approximately 207. And comparing that to calcium, calcium has an atomic weight of approximately 40. But the lead atom is packed much more densely, yielding a smaller radius than calcium. So even though a lead atom is bigger or has a higher atomic weight than calcium, it actually has a smaller radius because it's packed more tightly together. And because it's packed more tightly together, it easily can swift and slip its way through calcium channels to enter cells. 
Why do I care? Because within cells, lead is able to move around the cytoplasm and the nucleus. And what it does is it has the ability to bind proteins via competition with calcium, zinc, and other metals at specific ionic binding sites, as well as uh, to accessible sulfhydryl groups, amine groups, phosphate groups, and carboxyl groups. And so in short, uh, uh, lead has the ability to compete with other atoms and molecules in the body at binding sites, taking over where those things should have gone and therefore causing conformational changes, making changes in these proteins, and therefore altering the function of those proteins. One example of this is with calmodulin, a critical protein that normally binds calcium and it normally through this activates the protein, making it capable of multiple downstream actions. But if lead were to bind to calmodulin, it affects its ability to then go ahead and lead to multiple downstream actions, essentially preventing the protein calmodulin from doing its actual role in the body. So that's lead's ability to affect function. But lead is best described in its ability to impair the heme pathway, the production of hemoglobin. However, heme is actually not only a part of hemoglobin, it's also an essential component of the cytochrome P450 enzymes. And those are engaged in steroid genesis, vitamin D metabolism, detoxification in the liver, as well as fatty acid metabolism. And so this is the point that I was getting at in the introduction. We often think of lead as being that uh, atom, that metal that affects heme production. And it's true, it does affect hemoglobin production, but it's not the only thing that it affects. And if it has the ability to affect the cytochrome P450 uh, path enzyme pathway, that is, it's, it's critical because the P450 enzyme pathway is crucial and it's distributed in nearly all cells of the body. And specifically, there are are three enzymes out of the eight uh, in this pathway that are susceptible to lead inhibition. One of those enzymes happens to be allodehydratase, which is alloaminoluvulinic uh, acid dehydratase, and that is a major enzyme in the pathway of hemoglobin production that lead has the ability to bind to in erythrocytes, at, which is and it's very sensitive to lead and therefore prevents the uh, pathway production of hemoglobin. And by the way, it's not just the production of hemoglobin that we're worried about here, because by inhibiting allodehydratase, you're causing a buildup of the molecule that comes before allodehydratase um, uh, enzymatic pathway, and you're causing a buildup of alla, alpha-aminoluvulinic uh, uh, acid. And so when you're causing a buildup of the aminoluvulinic acid, you're essentially causing um, a buildup of toxicity. And we see this with congenital deficiencies of allodi, which is, uh, for example, in, in certain porphyria syndromes, and you can get an excess of this enzyme substrate, which may be toxic. Of note, it typically takes a blood lead level of at least 10 micrograms per deciliter to actually inhibit this enzyme's function enough to raise the concentration of the aminoluvulinic acid. And uh, we can talk about this effect of lead affecting the heme pathway in another area of the pathway, which is its ability to... Uh, um, 
affect and block the enzyme ferrochelatase, and that's the last enzyme in the heme pathway. And uh, typically, this happens when lead levels are greater than 20 micrograms per deciliter, and what it does is it impairs the enzyme function, causing an increase in protoporphyrin levels, as well as eventually reducing heme production. And so again, you don't just get the impairment of heme production, you get a buildup of substrates that are also toxic in and of itself. Now that we have an idea of how lead works and why it is so important for us to understand its mechanism, uh, specifically because it affects the whole body and not just one pathway, uh, I think it's important that we move into the uh, clinical effects of lead. And we'll start with some of the subclinical effects. And the reason for it is because um, this the subclinical effects is really what has driven public health efforts to try and eliminate childhood lead exposure in the last 40 years or more. Now, the very definition of subclinical effects is the is the idea that uh, you don't really see it. It's not something that you can really physically see. Um, It's more of a quality, essentially, that you come to experience. And so uh, with lead poisoning, the organ that seems to be most sensitive to lead is the brain. And it's the effects on the brain that, like I just said, has largely driven public health efforts. And specifically, it's the tests of cognitive and behavioral function that shows an inverse relationship with blood lead levels. And so what that means is as blood lead levels go up, uh, we see a decline in cognitive and behavioral function. Now, obviously, um, this is really important in children that are growing and developing and their brains are continuously growing and developing. And we want them to get a, um, to maximize their brain function as they get older and have high IQ. Um, however, this is you know not not to put aside adults, but they're also affected by this, and they can also have lead exposure in other ways as they get older, which can also affect cognitive and behavioral function. Multiple studies have been done linking IQ scores to um, to lead levels, and what they found is that in children, approximately 0.5 IQ point loss is seen for every one microgram per deciliter increase in blood lead level. Now, that association may not actually be linear. There were other studies showing that it might be curvilinear, which means as you necessarily doubled the blood lead level, you didn't necessarily see a doubling um, of IQ point loss. However, the point is made that it doesn't matter. If there is a blood lead level, it can lead to a decrease in IQ. And for anyone who's a parent, the most important thing for for them, for their child, is that they grow and develop properly and have the ability to be intelligent and get a job and hold a job and create a family and have their own kids one day. And so that becomes really, really important. Other subclinical effects of lead include uh, the inhibition of erythropoiesis, of which we've said already the, the, the blocking or inhibition of production of red blood cells, um, and that could be due to the ability to reduce the production of EPO uh, in the kidneys. It also, at high lead concentrations, affects red blood cell survival, which could be shortened. There could be renal impairment, uh, which can eventually 
cause gouty nephropathy. There could be diminished uh, GFR, glomerular filtration rate, uh, and also the development of Fanconi syndrome. In addition, uh, lead can also affect spermatogenesis, the production of sperm, uh, where you can have reduced number of sperms, and you can also have less motile sperm. So you see that lead really can affect many organs in the body, and it seems that no organ is free of lead effects. Moving on to the clinical effects of lead, and we're really going to start at the worst because like I said, it's the worst that we're afraid of and that's what's led to the major public health um, efforts to eliminate childhood lead exposure. And so uh, we'll start with encephalopathy, seizures, and death. And typically, you'll rarely see that reported at blood lead levels that are less than 100 micrograms per deciliter uh, in children. Um, However, you need to keep that in mind. Yes, it's not going to happen or it's rare that it would happen less than 100. Uh, However, um, it's, it's still possible. And once they reach that level of 100, well, you're really, really worried that they might actually um, die from this exposure. The other thing to keep in mind is that fetal lead exposure because uh, lead can actually uh, travel uh, through the placenta to the baby, to the fetus. Um, And so fetal lead exposure increases the risk of demise at much lower levels. So if the fetus is exposed to lead, they don't need to reach that level of 100 to increase their risk of death. They can actually have an increased risk of death at much lower levels due to their transplacental exposure of lead. Now, I know I just scared you, but here's the good news. In the United States, there has not been a death attributed to such blood lead levels in more than 10 years, and that's because of our public health efforts to eliminate the exposure. But in other parts of the world, lead poisoning is still a killer. Around 2010 and then again in 2015, in certain regions of northeastern and central Nigeria, public health workers discovered that more than 400 young children had died as a result of lead exposure that came from gold extraction efforts. And so, yes, we want to congratulate ourselves on this huge accomplishment of not having a death attributed to high blood lead levels in more than 10 years. However, we can't forget about the rest of the world that we still need to get behind and educate to eliminate their lead exposure. At blood lead levels greater than 20 micrograms per deciliter in school-aged children, you can see attention deficits, and you can also see disruptive and aggressive activities. And uh, the other thing is that levels of lead exposure have actually been highly correlated with violent criminal behavior. So now we're talking about greater than 20. Before, we were talking about uh, 100 or less. Greater than 20 is, is, you know, in comparison, is not such a high number. And so you need to keep this in mind as we continue to go through this paper. Children that are exposed to lead can also have um, blood lead levels that lead to uh, dental cavities, which we've seen studies showing. Um, And so you want to make sure to pay careful attention to teeth during the evaluation and treatment of a patient with lead poisoning. Uh, Patients with lead poisoning can also have gastrointestinal complaints. Typically, this happens um, with blood lead levels that are greater than 20. And usually, once it's greater than 20, they'll have more of 
intermittent recurrent symptoms. Uh, but once it reaches levels of greater than 50 micrograms per deciliter, that's when you start to see the more constant abdominal pain. And we'll talk a little bit more about this abdominal pain later when we break down the lead levels into specific groups. So we know how it gets in. We know um, what it can do inside of the body. We know what ways it might be manifested um, clinically, but where? what are the sources of lead exposure? Where did it come from initially? I know we said paint chips, but where else is there lead exposure? Because we still see some level of lead poisoning today, even though we've come a long way at eliminating lead-based paint. So despite our efforts to eliminate lead-based paint, because lead-containing paint was highly promoted and used in the United States, especially during the first half of the 20th century, the legacy of lead poisoning continues to the present day. And that's because we still have these same sources of lead exposure until today. The United States did not set national limits until 1978. And at that point, that's when they finally said that you must have a less than a 0.07% cap on allowable lead content um, in sources of lead. So that's where that 1978 number comes from. When you go to the pediatrician, or if you are the pediatrician, um, and you're asking the question about the home or building and when it was built before or after 1978, it comes from this, from this fact that the United States did not set national limits until the year 1978. And actually the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission's revised that limit to 0.009% in 2009. Um, now, state and local governments set limits well before the federal government. However, you know, different states followed along at different times and their capping of the allowable amount of lead in paint um, did not actually uh, come at the same time, meaning New York capped their allowable amount of lead in paint in 1970, whereas um, Baltimore Mar and Maryland uh, banned their lead, uh, lead paint in 1951. So you see how there's discrepancies between states, and so uh, you can actually see state-to-state uh, -state changes or differences in exposure um, and uh, illness during those years. Now, even those laws that were put out to limit the lead content in paint, these laws were actually, they only applied to lead paint in, that was in households for household use, but there was no such limit that was actually imposed on schools. And this created a problem. For example, New York City Department of Education continued lead paint applications until 1985. And not so long ago, in 2019, this was uncovered when a reporter was visiting his child's first grade class and found paint chips on the floor next to a rug that she sat on. And looking up, uh, he saw a crack under the windowsill, had the paint chips analyzed, and found that they were highly leaded. 
He continued to collect samples of the chips and dust from four other schools that were built before 1985 and found all of these samples to contain lead. This story was published and it became, it went viral and it motivated the Department of Education to conduct a systemic evaluation of New York City classrooms, um, specifically serving three to six year olds in schools that were built before 1985. And what they found was that 20%, about 1,800 classrooms, were found to have hazardous lead paint conditions. Over the next summer, abatement efforts were made to get rid of these of all of this uh, lead-based paint. Now, were the kids in these classrooms harmed? Unfortunately, we'll never know because there was no testing or comparison of cogn- cognitive performance uh, that was done to answer that question. However, it begs the question because we have children in these schools that have been there for so many years going through the process um, with lead-based paint still on their walls, still peeling chips off of it and, uh, you know, potentially putting it into their mouths and then building up in their tissue. And, you know, not as a scare factor, but, you know, it's something that, you know, we, we just, we just never realize, uh, until, you know, it finally came about. Now, lead is uh, very versatile, and so therefore, there are hundreds of other commercial uses for it. So lead uh, used to be found in certain types of gasoline. Uh, Food and beverage cans used to be sealed with a lead solder uh, until the 1980s, and that could contaminate, that at that point, um, was able to contaminate food and drinks, specifically those that were acidic. So if you think of your Coke can, for example, well, you might have had lead exposure to it if you were, you know, drinking Coke in the 1980s from a soda can. And even today, there are product recalls all the time. Specifically, these are products usually that are imported, but it can be in contaminated foods, especially spices. It could be in pottery, cooking utensils, traditional medications, jewelry, cosmetics, toys, crayons, cable sheathing, pipes, furniture, and so much more. Another interesting example is lead in water. And this resurfaced as a concern in 2014, again, not so long ago. And this was because of contamination, you might remember this, um, of the Flint, Michigan water supply when the source was changed. So the new water supply corroded the old lead pipes and that led to lead being introduced into the drinking water. Similar to paint, lead pipes were extensively promoted for water company use back in the day. Uh, specifically for main pipes from water treatment plants, letter pipes connecting water mains in the streets and pipes within buildings and homes. Pipe connections used lead so- solder. Uh, brass faucets contain 8% to 25% of lead. And so if you have acidic water, it can travel through these fixtures and actually leach lead from it, leading to lead being in drinking water. This led to testing in many other states across the U.S., and for the first time, New York State mandated that all of the state's public schools test their tap water, and they discovered that nearly 90% of its public schools had at least one faucet yielding water with lead over the EPA household water limit of 15 micrograms per liter. 
and uh, which can also be equated to 15 parts per billion. And just note that this standard is targeted at water providing companies and is not necessarily health based. So that limit that was set is really for water providing companies. It's not necessarily health based, which means that we don't know or or the effects of it on health, even though there's a limit, um, they may still uh, have negative health outcomes at that limit. Currently, at the moment, the American Academy of Pediatrics, though, recommends that no more than one part per billion of lead should be in drinking water. Now, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is in the process of revising its standards. Um, however, a drop to one parts per billion is highly unlikely to uh, be well received by EPA. For more than 50 years, the CDC has been conducting surveys and they, from these surveys, they've basically uh, discovered or determined the ages when blood lead levels are highest and derived the concepts of blood lead screening to test the groups of children at the highest risk. What they found is that the peak blood lead levels were observed at ages two to three years of age. The original risk factors that were identified were being poor, living in old housing, especially in cities, and belonging to a minority race or ethnicity. Recognizing that environmental exposure combined with non-nutritive hand-to-mouth activity is the combination that results in the most lead poisoning, screening guidelines were then developed that indicated the need to test children at ages one and two years. Age one year to identify those already ingesting lead to intervene and hopefully prevent further ingestion, and then testing them again at age two years because the ability to walk and climb could increase access to new lead-containing locations in the child's environment during the period when continuing non-nutritive hand-to-mouth activity is still developmentally normal. Essentially, what we're saying is we test them at one year because at that point, they may have been exposed and we could intervene early. We test them again at two years because they still have some of that non-nutritive hand-to-mouth activity, plus the increased ability for them to walk and climb and access lead from um, either the same sources or other sources within the home. Now, something that's really interesting is that since ingestion is the main entry route, PICA behavior at any age is a risk factor. Um, when they examined the relationship between blood lead levels and age, it showed that although there's a sharp decline in average blood lead levels after three years of age, the drop is only approximately one third from the peak level. So for example, if the peak blood lead level in two to three year olds averaged 12 micrograms per deciliter, then the level in four to 19 year olds was approximately seven to eight micrograms per deciliter. Now you would have expected a much sharper sharper change in levels between a two-year-old and a 18 or 19-year-old. However, we don't see that, that much of a drop. And so in other words, the risk of having lead poisoning did not decline to zero in the older participants in this cohort. Now, this could reflect bone lead accumulation that occurred at earlier ages with slow, steady release into the bloodstream, or it could represent new ingestions that occurred in either smaller part in a small part of the cohort or to lesser amounts of lead ingestion in general.
And so what I find interesting about that is this really ties in everything we said from the beginning. And that is when we test blood lead levels, it's not necessarily the best measurement for the risk of toxicity because you can have lead, plasma lead, that then goes into tissues and accumulates there and can be there for years and potentially slowly and steadily releases itself throughout many years of life to cause continual damage to the patient. But since the 1970s, the average blood lead levels have declined by more than 90%. And with that reduction, the severity of lead poisoning in the United States also improved dramatically with the near elimination of lead-related childhood mortality. Unfortunately, though, lead continues to remain a killer in other parts of the world. So in the next section of this article, they start to talk about understanding blood lead milestones. Now, I'm going to reiterate some stuff that I already mentioned before. Although the blood lead level is our gold standard for determining lead exposure, ingestion, and risk of toxicity, there are caveats to interpreting blood lead levels in individual children. Now, we previously said said that blood lead level is a whole blood measure because most of the lead is actually attached to red blood cells and not in the plasma. Now, the reside time is much shorter in blood than it is in the target tissue. So the blood lead level does not actually define the duration of the exposure or the total uh, blood lead, uh, lead accumulation in the body. Um, and therefore, the blood lead level is not a direct measure of the lead effects in the body as well. Now, there are testing method concerns. If you draw capillary blood to get your sample, uh, while it's convenient to obtain and it's useful for screening, it is subject to contamination and therefore you could end up with false positives. In addition, squeezing too hard to obtain the drop of blood could dilute the sample with extracellular fluid and thereby giving us a false negative. And then in addition, if there's any positive screening with capillary blood, then you need to immediately confirm it with venous sample. Sampling. So you see here that there are definitely testing method concerns in addition to the fact that the actual test, though it being the gold standard, does not adequately uh, give us the best information of the toxicity in the body or the duration of exposure or time from exposure. Now, with all that said, again, blood lead levels are still the gold, gold standard. And the CDC, um, actually, to try and eliminate additional errors, has uh, requires all laboratories that are testing to have measurement error ranges of less than plus or minus 4 micrograms per deciliter, or 10% to pass proficiency testing for certification, meaning they need to have a very low margin of error in order for it to pass proficiency for certification to allow for it to be the gold standard test in whatever laboratory where it's being tested in. In addition, um, you need to consider cognitive scores as the main health outcome measure of concern. Um, although that is one of the main concerns, we've yet to really define a safe blood lead level, um, which is a level that below which we have no discernible health effect um, that can be observed. So given this information, given the limitations to testing, um, we still call this our gold standard, but the question then is, how should we interpret our gold standard results? Now, the CDC uses certain numbers as cutoffs that should then trigger certain clinical responses. Nothing is definite, 
Um, but given certain levels within the blood should trigger the physician to undergo uh, further testing or treatment strategies. Now we're going to talk about these cutoffs and what exactly these cutoffs mean and what clinical response uh, the physician should take. And if you are a patient um, or a family member of someone who potentially is going to be tested, for example, any parent of any child that will eventually be tested, these are things that you want to um, understand and know because there are implications for your child's future. So the first number you want to keep in mind is the number five, five micrograms per deciliter. Now, studies have repeatedly shown that cognitive scores and blood lead levels are inversely related, and it shows that there is an apparent decline that begins as soon as the blood lead level increases above zero. Now, the implication of this is that toxicity is associated with blood lead levels anywhere between zero and one, meaning you're not safe as long as you are above zero. You're always going to be questioning whether that's enough toxicity um, to cause damage in the child. Now, that threshold, it's not exactly you know accurate because we haven't been able to accurately study it. However, it begs the question, if we're not sure in the absence of a defined toxicity for blood lead level threshold, when should we intervene and treat this child? Now, here is one of the most important statements I'll probably make in this podcast. In 2010, the NANES cohort that included blood lead level data collected from children one to six years of age showed that the top 2.5% of the distribution had a blood lead level of five micrograms per deciliter or greater. What that means is the top 2.5% of the bell curve, the highest uh, portion of the bell curve in children one to six years of age had a blood lead level of five or greater. What that meant in that time frame, this is going back now to 2012, if we were to offer healthcare resources for the population in this tale of blood level distribution curve, that would mean that 500,000 U.S. children would be eligible for public health and medical intervention nationwide. Now, the reason why this is important is because in 2016, a new NANES cohort found that the 2.5% level had declined to 3.5 micrograms per deciliter, which means we are now looking at a lower threshold. Whatever that threshold means in terms of toxicity, regardless of it, we have lowered the bar here. And because we've lowered the bar, that means that more children are being affected. And so even though the CDC hasn't adjusted its intervention level as of April of 2000. 21, we expect that in the near future, the intervention level will not be at five. Five will not be that first number anymore. Rather, it might be somewhere closer to 3.5. An interesting phenomenon occurred after the CDC declared five as that magical interventional level number. And that is that even though this number was based on a cohort that was representative of young American children in 2010, like we just said, children one to six years of age, this number of five was actually extrapolated as the intervention threshold to kids of all ages and was then adopted by other countries around the world. Now, even though this information is 
already out of date based on the newer 2016 data, it does remain the value that drives clinical and public health efforts for people far beyond the database from which it was derived, which means we are using a number based on a small population, uh, a cohort study of children of a specific age group and using that number for a larger amount of people. Now, that might mean that we're capturing more people because we're applying it as a threshold to everyone, but it can also mean that because we're using this number of five, we're also missing the toxicity in people that have numbers below five. So that is something that's really interesting and something to keep in mind as we move forward with new data coming out. The second number, 20. 20 micrograms per deciliter. So when is lead poisoning considered a clinical disease? The main symptoms of abdominal pain, constipation, inability to concentrate, and disruptive behavior seem to be associated with blood lead levels greater than 20, which is why 20 has, has become the number of which we typically call it a clinical disease. Now, these symptoms are certainly not lead specific, and they actually can occur in children with lower lead levels as well. But the frequency of such complaints of abdominal pain, constipation, inability to concentrate, disruptive behavior, it all seems to be higher in children with blood lead levels greater than 20 micrograms per deciliter. Number three is 45. 45 micrograms per deciliter. Chelation treatment. The use of drugs to bind lead is indicated for children with levels that are greater than or equal to 45. So 45 is your magical treatment number. Above this level, above 45, chelation markedly enhances lead excretion in most children. It really helps to get rid of the lead. Now, the aim of chelation is to prevent further toxicity, at least from removed lead atoms, which would also be ideally associated with recovery. However, the currently available drugs are really not that effective in removing lead from children in, with lead levels that are less than 45. Now, um, chelation does reduce the blood lead level at any level in the body. However, it has not really been shown to be effective at levels below 45. And, you know, you may jump to the conclusion and say, well, who cares if it maybe helps, maybe it doesn't. Shouldn't we just give all kids this chelation therapy, whether they're at 45 or less? And the answer is no, because not only may it be ineffective, it may actually cause some harm. And we'll talk about the harm that can potentially come from chelation therapy when we move into treatment. Number four, 70. 70 micrograms per deciliter. Now, the addition of a second chelating agent with a different toxicity profile allows more rapid removal of a greater amount of lead. In the United States, where chelating agents have been readily available, two drugs are used for children with blood lead levels of 70 micrograms per deciliter or greater. However, chelation with even a single agent, like succimer, for example, markedly reduces lead-associated mortality in children with blood lead levels greater than 100 micrograms per deciliter. So the point that the article is making here is once you get to that number 70, you start thinking of a second chelating agent to help boost lead removal. However, don't discredit the fact that even a single agent such as succimer can actually really markedly reduce um, mortality in children, especially when you talk about the fifth number, which is to come, which is blood lead levels greater than 100 micrograms per deciliter. 
So lastly, number five, 100 micrograms per deciliter. The risk of lead encephalopathy and death increases at blood lead levels that are greater than 100 micrograms per deciliter. Although there are rare reports of encephalopathy occurring at lower levels. Now, these children require much closer observation during chelation because their central nervous system condition can actually worsen in the initial parts of therapy. In addition, you need to worry about renal impairment, which is more likely during treatment at these very high levels. So the key thing here is that at levels of 100 or greater, we start to worry about encephalopathy and death. And that is really scary, which makes the entire program of public health to try and raise awareness for the removal of lead or, or screening measures of lead levels in children, despite not having a great threshold number. Despite that, it is important because it helps us to recognize a level before it reaches a level of 100 or greater that can cause death and significant, significant morbidity. Okay, so before we move into the actual treatments, let's talk about what is expected by the CDC um, for actions based on certain blood lead levels. So for levels that are less than five, you're gonna do a routine assessment of their nutritional and developmental milestones. You'll give them some anticipatory guidance about common sources of lead exposure and have them come and follow up for lab testing um, typically it, within like three months time. Uh, if the lead level is between five and nine, uh, what you'll do is, again, similarly routine assessment. You'll talk about uh, the lead exposures. At this point, you might want to have someone come in and, and start an investigation of the home to identify potential sources of lead. Um, you also want to follow up blood lead levels. And again, if it's between five and nine, at this point, you're going to do early follow-up testing at three months and later follow-up testing after the blood level starts declining at six to nine months. You'll also uh, give nutritional counseling, and this is a key component here that I don't think I mentioned before, but nutritional counseling related specifically to calcium and iron intake. And it's because we mentioned before that lead likes to compete with other um, elements like calcium and iron. And so you wanna make sure that they're taking in enough calcium and iron, and this will become important when, once we get to the higher lead levels above nine. So for lead levels that are greater than nine, so for nine to 19, level of nine to 19, the beginning stuff is more or less the same. It's routine assessment, nutritional and developmental milestones. You get, get a very good environmental exposure history, investigation of the home for possible sources of lead, and then follow up blood lead level monitoring as recommended, which for this, um, for this group, for the greater than nine to uh, level of 19, you're going to do early follow-up testing in one to three months. And then once the levels are declining, you'll follow up in three to six months thereafter. Um, and in this group, this is where we start to get into more of that calcium iron stuff, but specifically iron, it, you'll, you're gonna wanna do some lab work and you're gonna check on their iron sat status as well as their hemoglobin or hematocrit because if the lead is competing with iron and their iron stores are down, essentially you can end up with an iron deficiency anemia further comp complicating their uh, clinical course. 
Now for numbers that are between 19 to 44, greater than 19 to 44, again, everything is sort of the same in the beginning. You're gonna do a much more complete history though in physical exam, as well as neurodevelopmental assessment because now you're looking for some more toxicity. And again, at this level above uh, 19, which is 20 and above, you're starting to think about all those abdominal symptoms that really start to uh, present itself more commonly in this uh, group. Uh, you'll do the environmental investigation of the home and lead hazard reduction. Follow-up blood level mon- lead level monitoring will be within uh, one... Um, one to three months in the 19 to 24 range. And in the 24 to 44 range, you're going to follow it up in shorter time because again, you're trying to avoid toxicity. So as they're creeping up at that number 45, you're going to start to test them sooner than you otherwise would. And that'll be between two weeks to one month. Um, And uh, at this point as well, you're going to start focusing on that lab work, getting the iron status, the hemoglobin or hematocrit, um, and you're also going to get an abdominal radiograph. So you want to look at the... Uh, images of the abdomen and look for uh, the need for bowel decontamination if it's indicated. Now for numbers greater than 44 to a level of 69, again, everything in the beginning is going to be the same. Your follow-up at this point for a blood lead level since it's greater than 44 is really going to be as soon as possible. And that's because at this point, you're really starting oral chelation therapy. So you start the therapy and you repeat as soon as possible. Um, You're going to get the lab work, of course, course, you're going to get the abdominal radiograph. And in addition to starting chelation therapy, you're going to talk with a uh, medical toxicologist or pediatric environmental health specialty unit. Um, you, you consider hospitalization for these numbers if the lead safe, if there's a lead safe home environment. However, if it cannot be ensured that they have a lead safe home, then you must hospitalize them. And then, of course, lastly, for numbers that are greater than 69, this is going to be our most critical. Um, obviously, 100 is, is our most critical in terms of morbidity and mortality, but above 69 is where we especially get scared and we start to give second um, chelation therapy treatments. Um, and uh, everything, for the most part, is going to be the beginning and the same. And uh, you'll follow up nearly immediately after, you know, or routinely after starting your chelation therapy, and you'll get your abdominal radiograph. And these children children will most definitely be hospitalized and monitored very, very carefully. Treatment, treatment, treatment. So when it comes to the treatment of lead toxicity or lead poisoning, there are four steps. Now, the first few steps are going to apply to any sort of lead exposure. But even before we get to toxicity, we need to talk about prevention. So step one is primary and secondary prevention, preventing before the the risk is there and prevention once you already have the risk there and you've identified a child as already um, having uh, lead toxicity. So primary prevention, this is goes in the way of uh, removing um, paint surfaces that contain lead in it and uh, removing any sort of foods from the home that contain lead in it, understanding what 
uh, amount of lead is allowable in certain products. So for example, bottled water is allowed five parts per billion. Candy is allowed only 0.1 parts per million. And juice is allowed, the limit is 50 parts per billion. So there are differences amongst different items as to what the maximum amount is. Tap water that contains uh, more than 15 micrograms per per liter of lead requires further investigation to determine the source of water contamination. There are also allowable amounts of lead in the air. And so what you see here is uh, multiple regulations at different levels that uh, are important for limiting the amount of lead in different items. Secondary prevention comes in the form of sending a sanitarian to the home to investigate sources of exposure, um, which often begins with conditioning of the painted surfaces. Now, they can use x-ray fluorescence instrumentation to uh, allow rapid assessment of presence of lead on surfaces such as walls. They'll collect dust samples. So there are a lot of different ways that once you know there is an exposure, it's all about trying to figure out where that exposure is and abating it uh, immediately so that the the patient and their family can move back into the home, especially when it's a uh, high level of exposure. Step two is eliminating non-nutritive hand or object to mouth behavior. So the reason why this um, has been seen mostly in young children in that lower age group that we mentioned earlier, you know, the one to two age group and or one to three age group is because of that frequent hand to mouth behavior. Now it doesn't only occur in children, this occurs in um, teens, it occurs in adults as well. In fact, there's a, there, there was a study done on medical students uh, showing how frequent their hand to mouth behavior is. And so even though developmental aging out, the child just getting older may be the most effective because it does decrease the amount of hand to mouth behavior. However, there still could be persistence and other strategies may need to be used. I know that one specific strategy that I've seen used um, when I was in high school was classmates of mine would put a a terrible tasting uh, clear nail polish on their fingernails in order to prevent them from biting their nails. Um, which would also then prevent them from that behavior, that habit of bringing their hand to their mouth. Step three is promoting adequate nutrition, especially for essential metals and their related vitamins. So um, many studies have been established that show that lead competes with essential uh, elements, especially calcium and iron for absorption. Now, because of that, you're going to want to correct any deficiencies. However, once you correct these deficits, uh, continuing to prescribe replacement dosages of calcium or iron doesn't seem to have any further substantial effect on blood lead levels. So at that point, once you correct any deficits, the normal daily requirements seem to be uh, sufficient. To absorb calcium, you might need some vitamin D. To absorb iron, you may uh, efficiently from non-meat sources, vitamin C is also helpful. So you want to think of uh, secondary stuff as well, not just the stuff that's deficient, but the stuff that can help with the absorption of those things that are deficient. And lastly, step four, which is chelation therapy. Now, treatment is guided by the blood lead level, as we've already mentioned. At levels greater than 45, we initiate chelation therapy. We asked the question before, why don't we give chelation to blood lead levels that are below 45 if sometimes we see cases of toxicity, of significant toxicity, presenting itself in, in, in lead levels that are less than 45, if potentially it can help prevent getting to above that level, lead level um, or prevent 
prevent significant uh, morbidity or mortality? And the answer is because none of the chelator therapies that we have are specific for lead. Um, essential metals can also be removed in greater amounts in children with lower blood lead levels, uh, which would be a detrimental effect. So for example, it can uh, chelation therapy can help remove zinc, leading to zinc deficiency, which can impair growth and maturation. And it can also lead to iron deficiency, which contributes not only to anemia, but also to cognitive impairment. So therefore, we do not really have an effective and safe chelating agent for children with blood lead levels less than 4 45. Above 45, yes, we're, we're going to take the risk. Of course, we're going to make sure that we are monitoring for the iron deficiency and the zinc deficiency. But in the levels that are less than 45, where the morbidity and mortality is just not as high, the question you have to ask is, is it worth it? Do the risks outweigh the benefits of the medication? And it, what we have seen is that it doesn't. There are older chelation therapies that we no longer use, and that is BAL or British Anti-Lewisite, um, which is no longer in use uh, because it requires deep IM injections every four hours, typically with two injections at a time for three to five days. It's toxic and its odor is no nauseating. There's a second drug that we rarely use anymore, and that's penicillamine. The advantage is that penicillamine is taken orally. However, it's a weak chelator, and it also has a very high toxicity profile and requires months of treatment, as well as it removes essential elements, which we just discussed is extremely important. So the medications that we have available today uh, that are typically used are calcium disodium EDTA, uh, which can be given intravenously or intramuscularly, so IV or IM, and it has limited and reversible toxicity when it's given properly to control the rate of delivery and prevent extravasation. It's usually usually given as the calcium salt, uh, giving uh, NA2 EDD, EDTA uh, can precipitate uh, hypo, hypocalcemia. So we make sure to give calcium with it so that we don't end up with hypocalcemia. Now, the most widely used drug, which is also, also happens to be the newest drug, is Succimer. Succimer is a congener of BAL and is administered orally. And it has an excellent safety profile. It's compared with most of the other agents um, as being less expensive. And it is also comparable to the calcium N2EDTA because of the fact that it requires typically a five-day course. For patients with blood lead levels that are greater than 70, uh, both drugs are typically used together. That's the succimer and the calcium Na2EDTA. Um, with succimer replacing the earlier use of BAL in this regimen. Now, historically, a dose of the BAL was given four hours before the initiation of calcium Na2 EDTA treatment because it seemed to support the brain better for severely lead poisoned children. And so, therefore, since succimer is a congener of BAL, it can similarly be given first as a, in quotations, head start drug in the current regimen. Once you start treatment, it's important to understand that there is going to be residual lead in the body after chelation, especially in the skeleton. In addition, blood lead levels rebound over the subsequent weeks to months. However, it rarely reaches the pre-chelation levels. If that does occur, then you need to consider new ingestions um, that took place. 
Now, the current drugs uh, in use do not remove substantial amounts of lead in children with pretreatment lead levels less than 45 for the reasons that we, um, well, the, the reason why it doesn't remove substantial amounts is a little unclear, but it likely may be due to competition. And so we worry about those deficiencies in other essential metals like we've discussed earlier. So the next question to ask is, aside from enhancing lead excretion, because it's great, we get it out of the body, but does it actually, does chelation actually improve outcomes? So earlier on, we might have noted that blood lead levels and allodehydratase enzymatic activity are inversely related. And recall that allodehydratase is the enzyme or one of the enzymes that's required for heme production. Now, as BLLs go up, allod goes down. Allod activity goes down. As BLLs go down, allod activity rises. Now, if there is rebound BLLs, then allod activity is going to decline again. However, on the other hand, the other enzyme um, that we mentioned earlier, which uh, if in if it declines can lead to high levels of protoporphyrin, um, that level will continue to fall after chelation even when there's a rebound, which means that chelation does a really good job at increasing heme production and causing a more permanent effect of reducing the toxicity of uh, metabolite buildups. At very high blood lead levels, chelation is associated with a marked reduction in mortality. And unfortunately, there are no controlled studies showing cognitive improvement after chelation at lower levels. So while we see significant improvements at higher levels, we really don't have any controlled studies showing that cognitive improvement actually gets better after after chelation for lower levels. And lastly, a question that many parents would likely want the answer to is, are the brain effects of lead permanent? Now, the answer to this question is really not the greatest. And the reason for it is because it seems like we should have um, uh, an improvement in brain function where the lead level toxicity in the brain is not permanent. And the reason why it seems like we shouldn't have permanence is because we know that the heme pathway, which occurs in brain cells, just like in other cells of the body, um, is improved once we reduce those blood lead levels and you kind of get a reversal and, uh, and, and return to regular activity. And so you would expect improvement in function occurring there as well. Now, there have been longitudinal studies that have been done um, and, and there have been two specifically interventional studies that really aim to assess this effect um, of blood lead, reducing blood lead levels and the effect on cognitive scores, and hope has been offered through them, uh, at least in children. However, even with those, the studies haven't been great. Now, you can go ahead and look in the article and see those studies specifically um, and the information that is given from those studies. However, um, at the bottom line, the, the end of it, of it all is uh, there's an inference of these findings that uh, Suximer not only was ineffective at improving scores on average, but it was also potentially interfering with possible recovery in children whose blood lead levels were declining. So although some um, studies offer some hope, there are other studies that actually um, seem to uh, allow for inferences that the treatment with Suximer not only doesn't improve 
uh, scores, uh, IQ scores. However, it may actually interfere with IQ score recovery in children whose blood lead levels were declining. Um, and so it's unclear as to what the answer to that question is. And for that reason, the public health aspect of trying to prevent lead toxicity becomes continuously more and more important. So the next time you go to the pediatrician or you're in the hospital or something comes up and a doctor wants to test your blood for lead level, understand what that lead level actually means that we're testing. That though it's the gold standard, it doesn't necessarily reflect duration of exposure, time since exposure, or actual toxicity. In addition, understand that there are different threshold levels that we uh, allow before uh, clinically responding. And though those levels um, may seem somewhat arbitrary, We've done a great job, at least here in the United States, of decreasing the morbidity and mortality to the point that we haven't had one death in the last 10 years attributed to lead toxicities. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I want to thank you for joining my podcast.